Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Code Zoo Vine for January 5th, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Yes, uh, good to have you all on in a new year. Um, didn't flub the year, uh, so... Um, Give it next week till I do that. Uh, but we're excited. We're going to start off the year like we had planned to finish last year with Dante Cheney. We're going to try to line this up again, but we're really excited. It's going to be a great guest. I, I think it'll be well worth the wait. So he'll be calling in in about 20 minutes. Uh, but till then, we're going to discuss a topic that we didn't know we had. Unfortunately, um, it comes up as a topic. We didn't know about it, you know, two or three days ago. Uh, but there has been an attack on Iran, and, um, you know, if you hear about the individual that was killed that's high up in the uh, Iranian um, military, he doesn't sound like a great guy. But the way that this came about, and as you hear more and more about it, it becomes more dubious in that, um, you know, this was the most extreme response, and, and Donald Trump picked it so quickly uh, a lot of the generals and advisors were surprised he picked it or definitely picked it so quickly. And then the whole at a rally, you know, we got him. And if you think back to when Osama bin Laden was killed, which, you know, very few Americans have any love lost for him, you know, President Obama uh, announced that in a much more dignified and, you know, presidential way, I guess you'd say. Um, Tim, you probably can lay even more details on this thing. Uh, tell us about it. Well, this gentleman, Kasem uh, Soleimani, was probably, the, politically speaking, the second most powerful man in Iran. He had been around for a long time, the head of the Republican Guard. Uh, he built that fighting force during the Iran-Iraq war over 30 years ago. And uh, he's been linked to some bad stuff, to some terrorist stuff, and to some underhanded stuff with Hezbollah and some other groups, uh, although he uh, did not have any love for ISIS and fought them and and one thing he shared in common with a lot of people in that region, they wanted us out from over there. And basically he was flying from, I believe, Jordan or Syria to Iraq to meet with the head of the uh, one of the main Shia militia groups there. And uh, apparently we found out about it and... Uh, decision was made obviously by Trump to uh, take him out and they used a drone strike at the airport to do it um, we'll discuss of course the politics of all of this in a minute but that's basically what happened and then since then as you know there's been something of a firestorm brewing about it because well we took out a high-ranking member of a country's government, and we did it in a very public way and publicly said we did it, and uh, so there we are. Yes, Catherine, I think back to a few months ago when you know Donald Trump pulled all the troops out of Syria, and um, people were worried there was being too isolationist. Um, of course, he you know talked about you know the um, Afghanistan theater of the war being the longest in American history and how we've you know been there too long and we need to pull the troops out now we go in a different direction on a totally different country um 
do you think this lacks coherence in how he, in one way, seems kind of isolationist and pull things out, and then in another way seems interventionist? Oh, absolutely. It's all very um, disorganized and uh, confusing and uh, undisciplined. Um, it's it's very scary. And the premise for this was that there was an, you know, an immediate threat. And no one can really determine where that information came from. We have no, you know, there's been no explanation for that. And, you know, uh, Matthew Dodd was on, was on um, good, uh, George Stephanopoulos this morning, and he said, you know, how can we trust him? He lies about everything. So whether it's the size of the crowd at the inauguration or, you know, immigration or whatever it is, he, he just he's not reliable. The information that he provides is not reliable. So how are we supposed to trust that an, an immediate threat is realistic? It's all, and, and it, it's terrible for our international reputation to, I mean, this is way against all international law and um, all the sort of guidelines that we've always abided by. And, uh, and, and we count on other countries to abide by as well. So it's it's a terrible terrible mess, and I don't see how it's hard to imagine how we're going to come out of it uh, unscathed. Yeah, and you know, of course, like Tim said, we'll talk about the politics later. But here's kind of, I guess, the more important initial thing is um, you've got Iran, a, a country that um, probably is pretty prideful, if you will. Their you know number two leader is killed, and this drone strike does go against uh, you know a lot of your Geneva Convention and your rules of engagement. And so, how are they going to react? Because depending on how they react, you're going to get embroiled, you know, much much deeper. I, I mean, if you know, and you still have to you know if you want to be a democracy and follow rules, that's important. But it, let's just say the thing you did this and it ended there. That would be one thing, and you could criticize it, but now it's a much bigger issue in that if Iran begins to retaliate, and I think I saw something this morning on CBS or from this morning. They talked about how they're looking at embassies across the Middle East. Uh, American embassies could be attacked. What if you know Iran goes full in and decides to um, reengage? Where does that leave us, Tim? Well, that's a good question. Uh... What what will they do, and what will this do to us politically, and uh, all of that? But as far as far as engaging, I, I don't think Iran would commit to just all-out warfare with us. That would be foolish. It would be a fight they could not win, even though they might draw a little bit of blood. Uh, our air power alone would just crush them. Uh, but uh, they've got quite a network of people around the world who can help them. I mean, these guys, you know, uh, went, went after people on other continents and hit them. Uh, they could certainly hit us, and we have some inviting targets. And, uh, you know, I know it's out there that they're going to maybe go after military targets and that sort of thing. What if they decide to, say, go after Trump properties? I bet those would be pretty soft targets around the world. Um, but, you know, so I, I, we just, we're just going to have to wait and see what they're going to do. But they're going to have to retaliate. They, they've got to do that. And they will do it. Uh, we just have to wait and see what they're going to do. Yes. Now let, let's kind of you know talk about. I don't want to talk about the politics of it exactly. Um, let's talk well, about how you know 300 million people feel in America. Let's say this thing escalates and it becomes you know circa Desert Storm 
or um, Circa, I guess the second was called Iraqi Freedom, if I'm not mistaken. Um, let's say this engages, and, and it becomes much to that scale, Catherine. How do Americans react um, to that, uh, given that you know Americans have been engaged in, in you know the Middle Eastern wars ongoing for like 18 straight years now? Well, I think a lot is going to depend on uh, if we uh, deploy a bunch of troops and, you know, have to go to the draft or something like that, or um, if people start getting killed, then, you know, the public will will rear its ugly head. But if, not, if it's just, a, you know, if people aren't getting hurt and people and troops aren't being deployed, then I just don't think people are going to be, are going to care about it. They're going to, the people who support such president are going to be like, yeah, go, you know, he got that guy. And then those of us who uh, feel differently um, will just be as frustrated as we have been with the president. Um, I think a lot is going to depend on how much, you know, how much it ramps up. Um, and how quickly and, you know, how much it's going to cost and all the things that people pay attention to, I think that's going to be a, be the deciding factor in how it, what the impact is on the rest of, on the country. Yes, and this thing could unfold, um, you know, over the course of months, not, you know, days or weeks, and so – because um, it, it may be more slow and methodical on their side. And then I think another important thing is how are the military leaders in America going to react? I mean, are they going to come out and be critical? Or some, maybe some of those retired military leaders, even like you know Jim Mattis who served in Trump's administration, are they going to be outspoken and either – say, hey, this guy from Iran was a bad guy, and, and we needed to do more on Iran. I mean, I'm just you know playing devil's advocate. They could say that. Or are they going to say, this is so rash and abrupt. This is not how a um, commander-in-chief of either party, Dove or Hawk, reacts in any way. Um, and, and I think that may be where some people get their cues. If enough military leaders came out and said, you know, this is just too rash, could not the hardcore base, the ones that go to the rallies, but kind of that soft, um, you know, Republican voter, how are they going to react to him? Oh, look, in, in a broader sense, other presidents historically, as we know, have received a surge of support from Americans, even if whatever they did went badly. Kennedy's uh, poll numbers jumped way up to his surprise after the Bay of Pigs debacle. Um, George Bush, uh, you know, 43, his support went from like 51% to 90% in two weeks, and that is the highest approval rating ever for any president in that short of a time. Now, there's not much sign that this will change anything here. Uh, his hardcore supporters that you just mentioned him are with him without question, and about everyone else is definitely asking questions. I don't think this is going to move the needle much anyway, especially upward for him. Uh, now, he did get some advantage from this, though, guys, uh, it did knock impeachment off of the front pages of newspapers, albeit briefly. I, there's probably nothing more that Mitch McConnell would like right now than to deal with this impeachment thing quietly and, and be done with it. Of course, that's not going to be happen. It's not going to be allowed to happen. Um, the thing that hurts Trump here, and Catherine, you know, said it right out it is it, it, his credibility he lies too much people just don't trust anything that that he he does much less says um 
And, and, and another thing, if people like polls right now, only 18% of Americans, that, which, I mean, that would be less than half of Trump's base, uh, support any military confrontation with Iraq. So that, that's where it is. His hardcore supporters are, are not going to leave him, but I don't think he's picking up any new support over this just, just because of who he is. Yes, I mean, I mean that'll be interesting to you know kind of see how the American people, how the generals react. Um, one thing I do want to point out uh, that I think is important is if you go throughout, throughout history, uh, before World War One, America got involved. You know, European nations were invading each other, and, and it took a long time for somebody to get in. But there was a catalyst that wasn't America starting it. Um, Nineteen forty-one. The Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. Uh, America didn't do the initial action. Uh, we can keep going forward. I guess the last one I'm going to do is, you know, even though we end up attacking um, Iraq too, but we'll talk about Afghanistan because they were harboring um, Osama bin Laden. They attacked American soil in New York and in D.C. in the Pentagon, and we reacted. This case. You know, I know Trump says that, oh, well, there was going to be attacks, but the first attack in this case, we did. And that's pretty rare in American history for, you know, something, if this blows up into something bigger, that we kind of, you know, did the first attack. Catherine, is that going to be just kind of washed away, or do you think that'll be resonate and be remembered by the American people? I think that'll be a historical uh Legacy, but probably not as. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the global leaders will definitely be, you know, concerned about that. But I think your ordinary um, individual voter, citizen, probably doesn't make as fine a distinction in that because he was such a bad guy. And uh, you know, so I think we. I, I mean, I, I'm not excusing it because he was a bad guy, but I, I think that a lot of people will be less. If it does ramp up, I think it'll be. That won't be the first thing that people think about in the in this country. I think it will be a very important point globally. Yes. Now let's talk about more of the hardcore politics. Uh, Democrats are running, and um, really foreign policy has not been discussed much, and now it will be for the next few weeks. Probably, you know, it'll be one of the more major uh, issues heading into the Iowa caucuses. Um, Tim, who do you see this benefiting, and who, I guess, if it benefits someone, then by default it kind of, you know, plays against someone else? Well, I, you know, the first thing I thought of, if it was going to help any Democratic candidate, had to be Biden, because Biden has a history of dealing uh, with with Iran and with that very thing, you know, with the with the nuclear deal and all that. He served in an administration that that uh, produced that deal. Um, uh, another thing that really looks bad for Trump here, where it don't benefit him so much, he didn't even tell the Gang of Eight. He didn't tell, uh, you know, the the Senate and House leadership. He absolutely said he didn't tell the Speaker of the House because he wanted to keep it secret. I tell you, when he said that, I laughed so hard I almost spit my teeth out. Um, he... Um, so I don't see any help for Trump at all. I see a, a very big plus for, for the Democratic candidates here uh, to bring foreign policy front and center. And that's a weakness for Trump. His foreign policy has been haphazard at best. So it's really going to benefit just about every one of them, uh, but, but especially probably Biden at this point. Well, and Catherine, who do you think that it could benefit or, or possibly hurt? Well, I think it could benefit. I definitely agree with Tim that it could help Biden, but uh, I also think it could help um, 
Buddha judge because of his military experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also um, Bernie, in an odd sort of uh, unexpected way, because he has always been um, quite vociferous in his opposition to um, going to war. I think that especially those of us who are who have similar feelings about war are going to look to him for for um, leadership and guidance in this in in this um, probably not as much benefit to him as to Biden or Buttigieg, but but I think there is some there may be a, a some help for but I think for uh, Bernie as well. I do think it um, hurts Trump a lot with um, moderate voters. Yes, and I agree exactly. I was thinking kind of the same things. Um, and people a lot of times are going to uh, want to see what they want to see. But if, if you're like, okay, I want someone with true foreign policy experience on the Senate Judiciary Committee, that's where it's going to benefit Biden. The fact that Pete Buttigieg has served in the Middle Eastern theater, it's going to help him. And there may be people that are just, I just don't like war, and war is not the answer. And those voters may be more inclined to support uh, Bernie Sanders. So it may energize all those. So therefore, you say, well, okay, by default, then maybe it does hurt Elizabeth Warren. We shall see. Um, I want to go ahead and pause right now because right uh, we want to uh, welcome in um, our guest. And then after that, we can you know get other points in. Uh, but welcome to the Kudzu Vine for the first time, Mr. Dante Cheney. Welcome, Dante. Well, hey there. How are you doing? Oh, great to have you on. We're doing good. Um, well, Dante, just uh, right off, uh, just tell our listeners a little bit about all the many um, projects and hats you wear. <laughs> that's a good. That's a good way to start. So uh, I I, uh, I work in data journalism. I guess loosely how I define it, and I work for the Wall Street Journal a couple days a week. I work for MSNBC. I work for not MSNBCs. NBCs Meet the Press. Uh, the Sunday show, I help Chuck do the data download, and I spend a lot of time doing that. Uh, and then I run a project at George Washington University called the American Communities Project. And what we do with that is we do we take data and we look at it at the county level, and we worked with an academic at Stanford to break all the counties in the United States into 15 different types of place. Uh, and then we essentially use the those kind of types of places as a way to understand data. So you can you can take unemployment and look at it through this filter and understand like what's the unemployment rate like in a place we call uh, rural middle America or aging farmlands versus big cities or urban suburbs or college towns or or military posts and it's just a way of of kind of a, it's a different way of kind of sorting through data and making sense of it because data can be overwhelming uh, and the way we built these types using we used forty different kind of forty different variables to identify these types of place. It's just a way of kind of keeping track of what's going on in the country. The country is a really complicated place, and I think we spend too much time talking about what Red America thinks about something or what Blue America thinks about something instead of kind of trying to understand the nuances that kind of define different kinds of communities, and, and, and that's a very long-winded way of talking about it, but, I'm, but I'm, I'll shut up now and <laughs> take any questions people might have or talk to you guys a bit. Oh, yeah. It's a fascinating map. I mean, broken down, you went county by county, and I'm sure you love uh, the state that we're in, Georgia, because it gave you 159 chances. Um, it's a fascinating place. It, it really is. Yeah, it really is. You guys have a lot of counties down there. I think I want to say uh, you might be second to only Texas. Uh, right. Yeah, that's right. I think I you're right. I spend a lot of time looking at county data sets, and whenever I get to Georgia, I know I have to go a long way to scroll through to it before I get through everything in there. But it is a fascinating – It's look, it's a really fascinating state. Georgia is an absolutely fascinating state because you've got everything going on around Atlanta and the greater area around Atlanta, and it's very different from the southern part of the state. And really kind of you get off to the coast and the military parts of the state. It's, it's a fascinating place. Yes, uh, mountains and ocean and big city all in one state. Well, um, looking at this – how many times do you end up traveling to at least, not obviously all these counties, or else you'd be in a Winnebago 24-7, but do, do, like, do you get sent to say, hey, I need to see this type of county out west and this type of county in the New England states and that kind of thing? 
So that's that's a really good question. I I will do that a lot this coming year, and I've done. I've done it a lot in the past. We, so for the American Communities Project, the, the, what we're talking about here, we did a big report last year on rural America, and we went to six different counties that represented six different kinds of rural place. I mean, the point of the report was that rural America, we, we throw that phrase around, and it, and it really is not adequate to define, to describe really what rural communities look like. So we went to six different kinds of rural community uh, and it was just a way of exploring differences, economic, socioeconomic differences, differences, cultural differences. But for this upcoming year, for 2020, um, I will already, with Meet the Press, I'm going to five different counties uh, that really represent different kinds of place, and I'll be digging into those places. Uh, and then working with the Wall Street Journal, we're working on a big project where we're, we're basically identifying 12 or 13 different kinds of counties that are going to represent different kinds of community that they want to report on. So... I kind of I have my hands in a lot of different pots. Uh, <laughs> I I will end up traveling. I've already traveled a little bit this year. I've got to travel a lot starting next week. I'm on the road up in Milwaukee and then out to Phoenix, out to uh, Maricopa County, and then back through to do some work in Colorado, and then I'll go uh, back to Michigan, back to Pennsylvania. Uh, it's it's going to be a lot of travel this year. It's it's important for me to go out and do, see these places because. The data are interesting, and they do tell you something, but it's nothing like when you see what the, what the data actually look like in reality on the ground, th- that's when you really learn things, uh, and that's, that's, when I, that's, that's when the work for me gets the most interesting. Yes. Now, um, we've heard a lot that in particularly rural America that when, you know, plants close and businesses move away and then, you know, there's the brain drain and everything else, all these negative things happen that it hurts. Uh, and I was listening. I've been trying to listen to almost every presidential candidate's book or bio or what have you. And um, I listened to Mayor Pete Buttigieg's pretty recently, and he said that the number one thing that a community uh, that's not a large city, but um, you know, probably yeah. about the size of South Bend, Indiana, can get is a university, uh, a good-sized college. Yep. Is he right, or is there something else? Well, he's absolutely right. Look, because the one thing about a university, so the fear is, in a, so what's the danger in a rural community? The danger in a rural community is it's, it tends to be, um, in most cases, somewhat remote. And uh, so if an employer leaves, attracting a, a major employer, and, and a major employer could be something that employs <clears throat> a couple hundred people, if that leaves, it's really hard to, to attract a new business because usually the, business is the, the original business is there because there's historical roots in the community. Uh, so getting another plant to move in or something can be very difficult. Universities don't leave, right? So, that's, so a nice thing to have is a university because they tend to stay put. That's always a positive. And then the other thing is, like, they help – if you can get a university, you can help prevent some of the things you're talking about where, look, for, for young people, you want to try to convince them that some people are going to move away. But, but you want to convince them that they don't have to move away. And one way you convince them you don't have to move away is you have a place where they can get an education. And then those universities, if, if, they, you know, if they're a decent-sized university, or they don't even have to be a massive university, but just something decent-sized – they they spring up businesses around them, right? They spin off businesses, they spin off opportunities, and that's that's something that can mean a lot in a rural town. Yes. Well, one final question I'm gonna ask before I pass it off to Tim and Catherine. Uh, I heard, listened to do research. I listened to several other podcasts you've been on, and on one of those you mentioned um, newspapers in smaller cities, and probably even yeah. a lot of big cities are, are, are their yeah. newspapers are declining. Um, if a community loses their newspaper how much does that impact them uh, it's it's huge i mean so it, it i think it, it affects them in a, in a couple of big ways i mean one thing it does obviously is you lose the local uh, look who, who else is going to cover city hall right who else is going to cover you know what's happening with the roads or or you know what's happening with the school administration like what's happening with the, with the superintendent like uh, you know what's happening with school enrollment even like there's nobody left to cover those stories. Those stories just kind of fall by the wayside. I mean, there's there's kind of word of mouth and things like that, but it's it's hard. So that's the first thing that happens. And the second thing that happens, I think, is very important. Is look, uh, the reason I do what I do, and I break, I under, try to understand the country at the community level, is my thing, my feeling that communities are full of people who live in a certain kind of place, and that certain kind of place. Um, it creates a certain kind of uh, you know understanding of what the world is like. Uh, and 
when you lose that newspaper, you lose the kind of common voice for that community. I mean, you can get it in some places on a local radio station every once in a while. They can make a difference. They can make a real difference. Um, but it's not the same as the newspaper, the officialness of the newspaper, and having that kind of uh, one place to go to get all the events and have a kind of agreed-upon set of facts or maybe something that causes a lot of, you know, puts people in a bad mood and they have a lot of arguments about it, but it's at least like we're all talking about the same thing. Those are big things to lose. And in rural communities, and you're right, in big, this is not just rural communities. It's medium-sized cities, too. I was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, when the newspaper folded doing reporting, and that's fascinating. I mean, that's Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's a lot of literate people. They don't have a newspaper anymore. Um, you know, uh, it, it's a real blow. Yes. Well, um, this has been fascinating. I'd love to ask you more, but I'm going to be fair to Tim and Catherine and pass it to Tim Shifflett. Tim? Good evening, sir. Thank you for being with us tonight. Hey there. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your county-to-county segments. Um, Mm -hmm. One I wanted to hone in on was Maricopa County out in Arizona. You you Mm -hmm. mentioned it as one of your target counties that you're going to be doing groups in. And, you know, we know the history of Arizona. I mean, it's the birthplace of very cold water, and uh, it, it was pretty much a red state with just a couple of exceptions. I guess uh-huh. the most shocking one was the first time Bill Clinton won it. Uh, uh-huh. But largely it's been a red state. But when we consider the fact that Trump, I believe, only won the state by, like, three points, and of the – Senate races coming up there. Yeah. Do you believe that – will you go into that focus group with the thought that Arizona is going to be a battleground state in 2020? Yeah, uh, and I think for exactly the reasons you say. I mean, Trump won it actually by less than three points. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> and it's really because of Maricopa, right, because so much of the population of the state is concentrated in Maricopa. Um, I think the reason it's a battleground is, is a couple things. And there's a reason why it's going to be very, by the way, saying it's a battleground and saying the Democrats are going to, you know, quote unquote, flip it is those are two different things. The reason it's a battleground, obviously, is in part, you have this, you have a large growing Hispanic population there. And I think what people really have to keep in mind with the Hispanic population in particular is it's very young. So every election cycle, the percentage of eligible voters that are Hispanic in, in a state like Arizona grows and, and grows actually fairly considerably because, you know, people age into being 18, right? People who are 17 mm-hmm. are going to be able to vote in this election. So that's a big bump up. That could make that could make a very big difference there. The counterweight in a place like Arizona is a little bit of what you see in Florida. <clears throat> there are two forms really of population growth in in Arizona. One is uh, young Hispanic families, uh, people having kids, right, and that grows the population. The other one is uh, like older retirees moving there, which is again, you see the same thing kind of in Florida. It's a very similar actually track. Uh, so those and and that that older population flowing into uh, Arizona, older white voters, they do obviously tend to, you know, statistically speaking, lean Republican. So that's the counterweight. But I think any time you have a state where, that was that close, that was as close as this as this state was, and I'm sorry. You're right. It was three and a half. It's Maricopa was two and a half. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's you. You have a battleground state. Yeah, it's definitely a battleground state. Now that does not mean I think it's going to flip for sure, but I but I do think it's it's something we're going to watch very closely. Mm-hmm. And when you put together a focus group in a place like Maricopa County, um, who who are you looking forward a, to talking to? Would it yeah. be more Trump voters or are so people? That's a great question because so when we did the first thing we did in Grand Rapids, we went there looking for one thing in particular. We went looking for white establishment Republicans, well, particularly establishment Republicans who in Grand Rapids tend to be heavily white because what our understanding of Grand Rapids, Michigan, is this is a place full of Gerald Ford Republicans who are not very comfortable with Donald Trump, and the data show that. Like, they voted for Trump, but they, by a very small margin, smaller margin than any Republican in the last 40 years, I want to say, which is remarkable in a year when a Republican wins the state. When we go to Maricopa, I think we're interested in two kinds of voters. I think we're interested in exploring, and, and that's, that group might have to be a little bigger than six voters. So we'll go there in a couple of weeks, and what we do when we do these initial trips to these places 
is we just meet with like 10, 15 people and we just, we just have a lot of cups of coffee with people and we tell them what we're doing and we ask them if we can lean on them to tell us what's going on in the place. And when we do that in Maricopa, we will lean, I think, heavily on, we want to talk to the Hispanic voters there because it's a big part of the story. And then we're going to want to talk to some of the older white retirees there. And we're going to want to hear kind of from both those groups because it's really the, the yin and yang of those two groups that's going to determine, in, in my opinion anyway, what happens in that state uh, in uh, 2020. All right. And so let's jump from Maricopa all the way across the country to Milwaukee County mm-hmm. in Wisconsin. Yeah. Now, obviously, the data shows us that turnout among Democratic voters was down significantly there in 2016, especially among African Americans. Yep. Do you think your focus group will be able to provide you with a feel for why enthusiasm for the Democratic ticket was down yep. and what exactly will bring it back? So that's an excellent question. So we've already gone to Milwaukee. Like, we have not mm-hmm. done a segment from there yet, but we went there in late, um, very late October. Oh, okay. uh, and, and so And we're going back there now. We're going to record a segment there in a couple of weeks. But uh-huh. we went there just to get, get the lay of the land. And we asked them, obviously, this question because that's why we went there. Uh, um, vote was down in a lot of Wisconsin. I think there are 72 counties in Wisconsin. I think the vote, the, the raw vote total was down in 51 of them. It was down all across the state. But it was down particularly sharply in Milwaukee. And obviously when you look at the, what happened with the black turnout there, that's about African-Americans and, and whether or not they turned out. What we heard from folks when we went out there was that there was just not a lot of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton. Look, I think we all expected some drop-off from Barack Obama. Was, Barack Obama was the first African-American president in history. You know, it's going to be hard to duplicate the turnout that that's going to create. But I think the drop-off was really surprising, and I, th- and I think it was particularly surprising with Hillary Clinton because there was an assumption that Bill Clinton had done so well with African-American voters that right. Hillary would as well. What we heard from, when we talked to voters out there is just um, they did not see Hillary the way they saw Bill, um, and they did not really they, – they, they didn't really have a lot of attachment to Hillary. They remembered the crime bill, um, and like obviously Hillary Clinton – that's Bill Clinton's watch. That's not Hillary Clinton. But, like, hearing that brought up again did not sit well with them. Uh, uh-huh. And remember, Bill Clinton's running in a really different era. I don't know how Bill Clinton would do in, in 2020. I mean, young Bill Clinton would do in 2020 in a place like Milwaukee. It's a different different time now, right? Different. We've, yeah. The country's gone through a lot of stuff. It's, it's changed a lot. Um, and, what, and so what's it going to take to get them out again? We've asked them that. I think they, they – first of all, there's a lot of love for Joe Biden. There really is. There's uh-huh. a lot of love for Joe Biden in Milwaukee. Um, but I think there's also, when we went there, there was also a lot of love for Cory Booker, a lot uh-huh. of love for Cory Booker. So I think, I think putting an African-American on the ticket is going to make it, it's going to be important for a lot of the voters now. And I think Biden has a lot of goodwill because of his time with uh, serving in the Obama administration, serving as VP. Mm-hmm. But I do think that when you talk about what's really going to fire up those voters, you know, I think a lot of them are going to want to see, um, you know, an African-American on, on the ticket in some way. And I think that's – and believe me, I, I think all the Democratic candidates are somewhat aware of this. At least all the white Democratic candidates are somewhat aware of this. So it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see, um, to see uh, you know, what they do when the time comes to picking running mate. Unless it is, of course, Cory Booker, in which case uh, I think they'd be pretty fired up for Cory Booker in uh, Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to ask you one more question of a national variety, and then I'm going to turn it over to Catherine, who is going to talk to you, incidentally, about her home state. Mm -hmm. Um, You're a data guy, Mm -hmm. and when the average person in this country thinks data and politics, well, they think of public opinion polls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We saw what happened, especially with state polls at the close of the 2016 election. Yep. After what happened in 2016, can we still say that those polls are fairly accurate and worth looking at, or, or do you think the public at large is not going to pay attention to that polling like they once did? Well, this, that's a really good question. I had this. I had a conversation with somebody about this. This, this just this like two days ago, 
when I was over over at NBC, um, uh-huh. when I was spending my time over there, we were talking about the poll problem because it's a problem. It is. Um, uh-huh. I don't know. State look. State polling is really hard. It is really mm-hmm. hard to do well. States are very complicated animals, and um, how you draw the sample makes a huge difference. And there was just uh, the problem with state polling is I spent a lot of time looking at the numbers out of 2016. You know, and I think we all, I think, I mean, this, you have political listeners to this podcast. I mean, they'll tell you that uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin put Trump over the top, right? Mm-hmm. So really different things happened in those states, really different things. Like Pennsylvania, <clears throat> Trump did something really remarkable with turnout, something that I, I didn't think I didn't think it was possible. I knew he could do it. I mean, I'd looked a lot at the numbers and said he could do this thing, but, it, but I think it's highly unlikely that he could turn out all these kind of white working class voters because they'd been on the sidelines for a long time. How the hell is he going to get them to come out and vote? But he did it. Uh, and that's a truly, truly remarkable thing that Trump pulled off in, in Pennsylvania. In Michigan, you know, it really was a mix of, like, they, if they had just gotten the African-American vote out in Detroit and Flint, they win the state. I mean, it was 12,000 votes. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, uh, so – and he, he does very – he did very well in Macomb County, like shockingly well in Macomb County. Uh, the one thing that surprised me is I thought he was going to lose Kent County, and he didn't. That's where Grand Rapids is. That's why I'm, and I'm very, very interested to see what happens there in, um, in 2020. And then, in, and then in Wisconsin, it just the turnout was down everywhere. I mean, turnout was just down across the state. So if you're talking about how do you account for that in polling, I don't know how you do it because like the electorates just look so different. So how do you build a model? Uh, the, what we're trying to figure out, the people who look at data, is how do you even build a model to try to get an idea of what this electorate is going to look like? The 2016 electorate was 77,000 votes in three states is how Donald Trump won this thing. Um, so it's just a fractions, you know, fractions of a percentage point in these places. How do you build a model that's going to accurately, <laughs> accurately predict that? I, I don't know how you do it. I, I don't know. And I think, I, think we're, I think we're all very nervous about polling in this state polling in particular, because the national polling might be right. But look, the, if we learned anything in 2016, um, we say this all the time, but we really saw what happens when it's, you know, it really is 50 different, 51 different state-level elections. Um, and it's very hard to get a good estimate of it. There are like five or six states that are really going to matter. And it's all going to, it's this, this electorate in particular, it's all going to be about what turnout looks like and it's impossible. I think getting the weights right is really going to be very, very, very challenging. And and as it turns out, Catherine uh, is from one of those five or six states that really matters, and I'm going to turn it over to her now <laughs> to talk to you about that state. Catherine? Well, hello. I'm a fellow Michigan- Michigander. Oh, hey there. And I, I am from originally, I'm a five-generation Ann Arborite. Uh-huh. I live in Atlanta now. And I grew up in in Ann Arbor, but then I went to college outside of Grand Rapids. And then for a while, I lived in Grand Rapids. So you can imagine the culture shock going from Ann Arbor <laughs> as a yep. you know 18 year old um, who grew up with you know the human uh, three. We had a you know three party rule in our city council and <laughs> right uh, yes yes yes. Uh, and a lot of, a lot of uh, you know political activity. And my parents were very very politically active so uh to then move to grand rapids and well actually i lived in um i went to grand valley which is outside of grand yep. rapids in yep, an yep. even more conservative area yep I know and well. spent a lot of time in holland michigan mm-hmm. which is even more the conservative. Only, right at the time <laughs> the only mcdonald's in the world that was not open on sunday was in <laughs> holland michigan so <laughs> Uh, and for the record, hey, for the record, I interned in the Grand Rapids Press about a million years ago and did about a month in the Holland Bureau. So um, I know the place of which it's you speak beautiful. quite well. Yeah, it is Bill Holland. It's gorgeous. beautiful, though. Absolutely it's, a, it's a beautiful little city. Absolutely. Um, anyway, um, so I um, so this was in the late 70s was mm-hmm. when I lived there. And it was so ultra conservative. And of course, Gerald Ford was president for the, yep. fir- the first little bit of time that I was there. And then I had the great pleasure of voting for in the presidential election for the first time by um, absentee ballot. And I remember exactly where I was sitting when I voted for Jimmy Carter that first time. Anyway, <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, it's vi- so vivid in my mind. 
And then it was a long time before I voted for a winner again. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but it was really conservative. And I mean, there was no, I mean, there, we, I remember like, you know, we had some young Democrat kind of things on campus, but we were, I mean, even my fellow, my fellow, a lot of my fellow students who you would think would be more liberal were not. They yeah, came yeah. from, you know, conservative communities all over Michigan. Yep, yep. But I, but, so I'm curious, uh, you've spent obviously a lot of time examining the data there. And I'm just curious if it's, um, I mean, I know that part of, I think there's been a big demographic shift. So I, yep. I haven't looked at any data about Grand Rapids, but I'm going to assume that the Latino community has grown a lot. It was very strong when I lived there. I mean, best Mexican food in Michigan. Um, mm-hmm. But I imagine that's grown because there's, you know, farming communities in the area and there's a lot of building going on. So, um, and then um, the sort of, like you were talking about the traditional Republicans. Yeah. Who I, I, I agree with you. I don't, they're not Trump Republicans. They're not. They're no. like, old, they're old school um, conservatives in the very <clears throat> sort of traditional conservative. I don't like to, I mean, Nixon, you know, we all hated Nixon, but, but he was a traditional conservative in my mind. And I yes, think yes. that's where I think that the, the and so, and, and they're also very socially conservative, yes. but not, not in the like aggressive way that, um, that we see now with the evangelicals. So yeah. it's just a demographic. So my question is, I'm sorry to just keep going around. No, 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 no. Is, is it both a combination of this uh, resistance to sort of this, uh, you know, I mean, we can call it Trumpian, but you can also take it all the way back to like Newt Gingrich, mm-hmm. uh, cons- Republican Party, and the demographic shift. Do you think there's like, is, is it both those things and it, in what way? So that, that's, <clears throat> that's, again, these are all good questions. That's an excellent question. So Grand Rapids is still, um, so, so we did that segment there, and obviously we interviewed all these white Republicans, and people were very upset that we didn't have any, um, we didn't have, we didn't have any people of color on the panel. And I was like, well, we're, we're talking to Republicans in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, you know, you could probably yeah. get it. You could, you, could, you could have it be a little more diverse, but realistically speaking, the group of voters we had when we talked to Grand Rapids, it's a lot, is really what the Republican Party and a, a great deal looks like in Grand Rapids. Even with the diversity in Grand Rapids, it's still 74% white non-Hispanic. It's still like, it's still almost 20 points above the national average. It's, it's quite high. Uh, and it's about 10% Hispanic now, and it's about, uh, it's, about it's well, 11%. About 11% Hispanic, about 11% uh, African American. So it's not hugely diverse, but what's happened is a couple of things. Uh, it's filling up. A couple things have happened in that it has grown a little bit more diverse. But the other thing that's happened that I think is much more critical is it's Grand Rapids. I don't know. Have you been back recently at all to the, to Grand Rapids? I've, I was there about two years ago. Right. So it's I still have kind, a lot of friends there. It's kind of hipped up <clears> a little bit. You know, it's gotten yep. like it's like I cannot believe how many breweries are in that city. It's, it's insane. Like uh, <laughs> there must be 20, 30, 40 breweries in that city and um, like brew pubs. And so it's filling up with these young kind of hipster people um, that, and this is happening in urban places all around the country. And it's, it's a grand, grand Rapids is a nice city. I mean, it's on the, you know, it's on the, it's on the grand river. It's pretty. Uh, And so it's filling up with those people. The college education numbers are climbing. Those people in particular are moving there. Well, for there's a bunch things. of schools there. I mean, there's right, a whole exactly. Bunch of well, there's there. Grand Valley. And there's Grand <laughs> Valley, of course, where you went, and also like Michigan State has built a huge um, medical campus there. There's a thing they call the Medical Mile now. It's all medical research and hospitals, and it's filling up with a different kind of person. That coincides with this larger trend demographically that shows that college-educated people, um, college-educated white people in particular, are breaking much more heavily Democratic now than they did 10, 15, 20 years ago. So what happens is the, the biggest factor driving change, I think, in Grand Rapids is the changes in the Republican Party that are pushing um, – that are pushing, because this, this does show up in the data, it's in Pew data, that are pushing uh, college-educated whites away from the Republican Party. Um, and then 
Grand Rapids filling up with more and more of those kinds of people. Uh, they're filling up with more and more of – there's some diversity, but like I said, it's still only – look, Grand Rapids still – or Kent County, I should say. Kent County is still much whiter than the nation as a whole. It's more diverse than it used to be, but it's still much whiter than the nation as a whole. But the people that are moving there, the, 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 the white people, and it's still, again, 70, 74, 75 percent white, are, are much more likely to have a college degree than they used to be. And because of that, they're also much less likely to be Republican than they used to be. Now, there are still, don't get me wrong, there's still plenty of college-educated Republicans, uh, white people who are Republicans in Grand Rapids. But it's also filling up this other group of people who are not Republican. And I have a I think look, there's if, a str- Go ahead, I'm sorry. I think there's a larger um, LGBT community there than yes. there was. I think that's grown, too, and that, of course, adds it, to the – and it, numbers and, too. It, and it is that's right and it's all about the fact that grand rapids has become as it grows as a city um it's just filling up with um it's filling up with what all cities are filling up with kind of younger more liberal people and it's it's moving it's it's changing what's happening in kent i i don't know what's going to happen for certain in this election i really don't like people ask me what's going to happen i first of all i don't believe in um, making predictions i just think it's silly you don't make predictions. You, you, you do analysis afterwards. Predictions don't really do any good. We still have to have the election, and then we'll find out who won. But, um, but you know, and when I look at it, I would be – I think Kent – there's a very strong likelihood that Kent will break Democratic, depending on who their Democratic nominee is. Uh, but if it's a moderate Democrat who gets the nomination, I would I, – I, would, I, I expect Kent very well may go Democratic. And, and – that will be a huge moment in American history because, or in Michigan history because Macomb will become, will almost certainly vote Republican. Macomb's going to probably vote for Trump again. And look, I grew up in Macomb County, and the story of Macomb County was blue-collar union people. And that is becoming, I mean, there are fewer and fewer people involved in unions now, but those blue-collar folks that I grew up around are increasingly Republican. And the idea that Macomb County would go Republican and Kent County would go Democratic that is a sign that if that happens, and there's a strong likelihood I think it could happen, that is a sign that we really are in the middle of a political realignment. That The parties are just – because I know who lives in those places, as, as you do. It's a sign that the parties are just changing. And, like, we're really – we're living through a political realignment, and it's really hard to know what everything's going to look like uh, 10, 15 years from now because the parties really don't know what they are anymore, particularly the Republican Party. But the Democratic Party has got some of this to figure out too. And, you know, we're in the – we're – look – it's a very weird and somewhat scary time to be alive, but it's absolutely fascinating um, in terms of just where is this all moving? I don't really know. I don't really know. But if that happens on election night, we're we're seeing something truly remarkable. Well, it is fascinating to have lived in um, Grand Rapids and seen um, <clears throat> and lived in that very conservative, very, mm-hmm. um, I mean, you could not say one bad word about Gerald Ford to anybody. Even my most <laughs> liberal friends who grew up there, they're like, well, I went to high school with the kids or, you know, I mean, the whole thing. And yeah. uh, I mean, and, you know, I got to say, in in reflection, Gerald Ford was, a, a, he was a really great man. I mean, he, yes. yeah, he no, did a lot he, for our country at a, at a time when we really needed it. So he I'm was a great man. He was a great man. And, and frankly, he was a, he was a good man. He was a, he honestly, yeah. he was a, he was a good person. I mean, you, you can disagree with his politics, but you can't argue it. You know, like Ford was a good, he was a good person. He was a good person. And so, you know, and I think, I think for anybody who covers politics, there's something of a longing for a time when people in politics were a little more like Gerald Ford. Um, it, personally, mm-hmm. definitely. Uh, yeah, we, we well, more like Jerry Ford and Jimmy Carter. If we could, yeah, you know, and Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Two. Yep, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, thank you very much. It was very interesting to talk about. Uh, it's been a long time since I lived there, um, in both places. Um, but it was really interesting to hear about how it's changing in Grand Rapids. And also, I always love to just think about Ann Arbor because <laughs> I loved it. Well, <laughs> I'm I'll be heading. I'm going to be heading so back much. there soon. Uh, and I'm looking well, forward to it. You said you lived in Ann Arbor. You work. You work. You work for the Ann Arbor News. No, so I worked for the Grand Rapids Press for about, uh, well, God, three, three and a half months. Um, I worked at the Bay City Times because I grew up in Michigan. I went to Michigan State. I went yeah. to the other, went to the other place. Uh, okay. and But my sisters went <laughs> I, to Ann Arbor. I, I didn't go to Michigan. <laughs> and uh, and I wrote, I wrote, I basically, I wrote a book uh, a while back called Patchwork Nation, and I focused on different communities. And one of the ones I focused on was actually Ann Arbor. So I spent a lot of time oh, really? going in and out of uh, in and out of Ann Arbor for a while, just like 
seeing how it's changing. And like I said, I was there when the newspaper folded, which is just absolutely – I mean, there is no Ann Arbor News anymore, which is just um, – Oh, I know. It's terrible. It's hard to believe. It's terrible. Um, yeah, my friends really who is. still live there still mourn it. It's terrible. Oh, I mean, I, Ann Arbor has – that's a whole other conversation, but Ann Arbor has changed a lot too over the years. Oh, yeah. No, no, a absolutely. Yeah, yeah, a lot. And it's it's still changing. I mean, it's uh, it's interesting place. It really is. Yes. Well, thank you so much. I'm going to send you back to David. David? Yeah. I, uh, Dante, Catherine, I, I don't know about Tim, but I just learned something. I thought all Michigan politics is about Kid Rock these days. So um, <laughs> it's on the horizon. Thankfully, um, no. Thankfully, no. <laughs> but Dante, seriously, uh, before we let you go and, and let you uh, tell listeners how to find some things, uh, you had mentioned um, – you know, predictions don't do any good. Analysis is great. And that brought me back to a piece of work that your colleague uh, did. And it seems like you work so much with data with him. It's something that you would be involved in if he decided to do it again. Back in, uh, I guess it was 2009, after the 20, uh, 2008 election, uh, Chuck Todd did the book How Barack Obama uh, Won. And if you're, yep. people aren't familiar with it, it's every state. It, it breaks down that state and the way it's going. And I really wish they would have kept doing that book. I mean, how Donald Trump won 2016, how, you know, whomever wins the 2020 election won. I, and that'd be a fascinating project. So that's, I guess, a question, will you, but then a request um, <laughs> at the same time. So something to consider. Um with the work you're doing and the work I guess he does as well. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I agree. So that was, I did not work with him on that book. I was before Chuck and I were working together, but I know the book. It's actually quite good. Uh, and I think that what we want to do is coming out of this election is um, these five places we're going, we are planning to visit them and spend a lot of time on them. And in the end, we think we are at least going to make, We'll see about a book, but we're at least going to make a, a small, a short documentary that, that we're going to try to get done before the election, just talking about what's happening in these places and how these five places tell us the story of like where the electorate's moving. Because I do think state, the state thing is really the state. Look, the state story is really interesting, but to me, it's like you can take these voter segments and they'll tell anything. Like, find out what's going to happen with college-educated white men. They're 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 a fascinating and important group. Find out what happens with black turnout if if blacks turn out again. Find out what happens with blue-collar whites if they come out in the same margin. Trump, Trump actually needs to bump up his margin. He needs to bring out more of them. We just did a story for the Journal last week on this. Like, they're 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 leaving the electorate, so he needs to find even more of them. You, if you look at those three groups of people, and I think college-educated white women too, but but I think that like if you look at those three groups of voters and kind of the push in the poll among them, and I think Hispanics too and Latinos. Um, You'll you'll know what this that's what this election is really going to be about, and I think we have a good way of trying to explore that stuff through these communities we're looking at. Yes, we'll be on the lookout for that. Well, final thing, um, if people want to find you on social media, find out more about any of your projects, uh, just give our listeners a, a few uh, sources. Yeah, well, you can you can always uh, the the American Communities Project is AmericanCommunities.org. You should definitely go by and take a look at the map and you know tell me what you think, how wrong it is, or <laughs> how right it is about where you live. <laughs> I always like hearing those things. Uh, and I am at at G, at D Chinny D C H I N N I on Twitter, and I tried. I'm I'm trying to be less active on there because it just makes me crazy. But I do check it a lot. I read it a lot for different different things I'm interested in. Uh, so, and you can always find uh, watch the data download segment on Meet the Press to see the work that I do with uh, to the work that I do with Chuck. Yes, well, great to have you on this evening. Thanks for your time. Thank, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you sir. so much. Yes, that was uh, Dante Cheney, uh, George Washington University. Um, American Communities Project, uh, data, data download on MB, M, uh, NBC News, Meet the Press. I mean, so many sources. Busy guy, no doubt, and, and very informative. Well, um, guys, it's pretty much the close of the show, but I'm not going to be uh, considered scared. I, I think I um, said something at the end of our discussion before Dante came on that y'all took um, – Umbridge with, or just wanted to clarify or what have you. So I'm going to give you all that opportunity. Uh, Catherine, um, you go first. I know I, I was I was about to say something, but I don't remember what it was. So it must not have been very important. Okay. Y'all seemed adamant at the time, but I could not hold our guest off. 
uh, oh, no, calling was... in. Uh, Tim? Gosh, uh, I don't remember where in the conversation we actually were. You know, I'm a year older than I was the last time we talked, guys. And, <laughs> That's uh, right. <laughs> my memory is not is not what it what it was. Um, well, so. Hey, that that was the best way to get the last word on that. I offered to give y'all the last <laughs> word. Y'all didn't take it. So, um, anyway, uh, I'm sure that we'll have that that discussion will come back up because we're going to have more and more uh, 2020 uh, Democratic primary talk and some other things. We didn't even get to it, but apparently someone's polling 2024. We'll have to talk about that at some point as well. But um, again, thanks to Dante Cheney. And until next week, it's been the Kudzu Good night, y'all. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world?